You're listening to Beltway Beef, official commentary from the National Cattlemen's Beef Association's Washington, D.C. office. Hey there, welcome back to the Beltway Beef podcast. This is Ashley Willits, and today I'm joined by Ethan Lane, who's the Vice President of Government Affairs here in the D.C. office for NCBA. Ethan, it's been a busy February. What's top of mind for you and your team right now? You know, I've been up on the Hill this morning talking to some members, and we're just kind of trying to get a handle on just what it's going to take to move legislation in this Congress. You know, we're through the uh, the first kind of phase of, of getting used to the new members. We've got the committee assignments all uh, bucketed out now. So now it's time to kind of get down to business. Um, everyone's still working through this budget reconciliation process, which is what the Democrats are going to try to use to move this $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill. But under the surface, what we're really starting to detect is Some of those fault lines developing between Republicans and Democrats, and really a lot of it centered on, unfortunately, the January 6th uh, uh, insurrection issue that that is now uh, well in our rearview mirror, but the effects of it as far as you know, Democrats refusing to join some Republicans on letters or bills and and a lot of kind of punitive back and forth happening is really starting to taint a lot of what's happening on the Hill. So just trying to get a better picture of how widespread that is, how damaging it's going to be, and how do we as an industry navigate that to make sure that we get our priorities advanced in the 117th Congress. You know, we we always try to do things in a bipartisan way. We always remind our our producers that we're not really helped by, you know, single party messaging bills being put forward. Um, we want to see that bipartisan path. So that's really important to us. And that's something we're going to be spending a lot more time on trying to figure out how to navigate this new Congress and some of these new dynamics. And hopefully they subside here in the next few months. Right. So you talk about those fault lines. Then you said you were up on the Hill this morning. What's that message that you're giving to members to make sure that no matter what side of the aisle they fall on, um, they're realizing the needs of the cattle industry and and we're making sure those needs are met. Well, the big part of that message that we try to convey is at the end of the day, our priority is the priorities that our members have set forward. So if you're letting party politics get in the way of what's best for agriculture, what's best for the cattle industry, you're going to find yourself at odds with NCBA. We're, we're going to be continuing to advocate to put those differences aside and do what's best for us, do what's best for cattle producers around the country, and do what's best for rural communities. And if, if we're hearing members on either side of the aisle that are saying, you know, I see that this is really important for producers in my district, but I'm going to choose today to, you know, to to get into a, a partisan political fight rather than doing what's best for my constituents. You're going to you're going to find us on the opposite side of that issue. And so conveying that message and reiterating very clearly, you know, what we need to see out of this Congress, what we need to see as far as legislative action uh, and what we need to have protected. You know, when we start hearing about changes to the tax code, changes to the estate and death tax, things like that, um, we need to make sure that that members up on the Hill understand that these are things that really affect how our members get through their day and how they operate their businesses. Um, so we're going to have to keep that drumbeat going and, and continue to educate folks, especially some of these new members to committees that are not used to this issue area yet. You know, we have new members of the Ag Committee um, that haven't really been a part of that conversation in the past. So giving them kind of cattle production 101, help them understand where the issues are, what the challenges are. Um, that's a big part of what we're doing right now as well as education. Good. I'm glad that you and your team have been up there and having those conversations. And I think it's important for our listeners to know that that's the message of NCBA. And and that's what you've been saying consistently all along. But kind of turning the tables here, um, a lot has happened with Biden's team this month. We've had some 
confirmations. We've had hearings all month long. Uh, let's dive into that. What are your thoughts there? Well, you know, we're starting to see some some uh, uh, confirmations happen. And, you know, it's interesting because I at this point in the Trump administration, more of those senior politicals had been confirmed. Uh, but that's not necessarily a reflection of, of any slowness from the Biden team. In fact, they've moved pretty quickly to name those people. But, you know, simply the Senate has just been occupied with other things. They've been dealing with the impeachment trial and, uh, you know, kind of distractions that have uh, prevented them from getting to that normal business. Now they're starting to get back to it. So, you know, we saw Vilsack confirmed earlier this week. Uh, we're seeing I, I, uh, Catherine Ty at USTR move through the process. Deb Holland at Interior wrapped up her confirmation hearings yesterday. That was a two-day, uh, a pretty eventful affair. Um, so we're starting to see that regular business. And I would imagine that we're going to see it kind of pick up some pace now and as they start to process those nominations, particularly the non-controversial ones, folks like Vilsack that were pretty much embraced on both sides as kind of an obvious choice. Um, I, I think those are going to move pretty quickly through. Um, others, Nira Tandon at OMB is one that we're continuing to monitor. Um, Joe Manchin really kind of flexed his muscle. We talked about this at Winter Reboot earlier this week. Uh, the Manchin factor, he kind of flexed his muscle by saying that he was going to oppose Nira Tandon's nomination due to her incendiary social media activity over the last couple of years and how she just wasn't very productive and that that was a dangerous person to put into an important role like Office of Management and Budget at the White House. So that's going to be kind of the new dynamic we're going to have to deal with, right? If Joe Manchin flips and, and, and that makes it impossible for Democrats to get her confirmed, what does that mean for moderate Republicans that have had the potential to do the same thing? Folks like Lisa Murkowski or, or Susan Collins up in Maine that are often uh, high priority targets if Democrats are trying to do the same thing on the other side of the aisle. So we're going to have to kind of watch how those dynamics play out and whether some of those moderate Republicans are going to want to assert themselves in the same way Joe Manchin is to, to show that he's got a lot of sway in this new Senate. Yeah, and I, I think you saw that with the Hayland hearing, too, kind of watching where Manchin was going to go and, and where he was going to put his support. And yesterday put his support behind Hayland. Yep. So um, let's dive a little bit more into Vilsack. So returner from the Obama administration, uh, he was confirmed last night. What's coming down the pipeline there? CFAP is the big question mark. Let's yep. talk a little bit about that. So I, I think it's fair to say uh, from talking to his team over there that there is a pretty healthy stack waiting for him on his desk uh, as he uh, hopefully got to the office this morning. Um, CFAP is, is top of mind. Uh, if all of our uh, listeners will remember, back in December, that year-end spending bill that was combined with a COVID relief bill included a top-up of about $1.4 for cattle producers. That's additional direct payments. And that's really intended to target folks that were marketing cattle back in the spring after April 15th that, that were subject to that cutoff date in the original CFAP program. So uh, there were a lot of producers that really were left short because they were taking the worst of the economic hit you know, in late April, early May, uh, and, and they didn't get in on the same CFAP uh, scale as producers that sold before that. So this $1.4 billion is intended to go back and, and just top up payments for those producers in particular. The difference and the reason for the holdup is Congress put a really specific formula in place for classes of cattle to receive payments in that window of April 16th to May 14th of last year. But that's very different than the rule that was that was promulgated in the previous administration for that original CFAP program. And, you know, the, the, the wonders of the federal bureaucracy, you know, on full display here, that means that USDA has to go back to, to, to the White House, to OMB, and get a new rule moved through to put that money out the door. 
They just, they can't use the rule they already have. Um, so as arbitrary and frustrating as it sounds, that's just kind of the, the, the way the system is designed. I'll remind people that in a normal environment, a rulemaking like that could be a year plus. In the spring, the Trump administration did the CFAP rule in less than 45 days. So I, I think we can expect, and I'm hopeful that we can expect uh, the Biden administration and USDA to try to move at least as quickly. This is not a complicated rulemaking. It's just something that needs to be done. So I, I would hope that they're going to have something out this spring, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't be waiting for that check any sooner than the next 45 days at a minimum. Um, that's about the, the, the quickest they'll be able to move that through the system. And our understanding is they're going to start moving on that today now that, that now that Secretary Vilsack is seated. So hopefully they're getting down to work and sharpening their pencils over there. Um, and that'll mean those checks will be flowing out to producers here in the next couple of months. Yeah, well, it, it certainly does seem like he has his work cut out for him over there. And, you know, I know you've talked a lot about the work that you and your team has done on the Hill, but you've also done a lot of membership outreach this month particularly with Winter Reboot that happened yesterday and, and this week. What was that all about? Uh, what kind of outreach did you all do to members? Well, this was kind of part two of our of our effort to make sure that we you know, still are engaging our, our producers around the country despite having to move our Nashville convention to August, which we're all excited to be able to still have a convention this year. A lot of, I think, ag organizations haven't been able to do that. Um, so we're excited to be able to still do that in-person meeting in Nashville, hopefully in August. But we wanted to make sure that we didn't lose that, that obvious opportunity to touch base and have that grassroots engagement. So we got our policy process done a few weeks back. We did our policy committee meetings and our board meetings and, and made sure that we did that. And then Winter Reboot this week was a great opportunity to uh, have a couple days to really hear from different parts of NCBA, hear from the different teams. Colin and I did a session on sort of the state of the industry. Uh, the lobby team here in D.C. did a, did a full featured uh, update on policy. And then uh, uh, the three executive directors, uh, uh, Caitlin, Allison, and Danielle did an advocacy session, um, really just trying to, you know, keep that keep that conversation going. I thought the platform was really good. I thought it was great that we could interact with producers in that coffee shop environment and have some one-on-one -on -one conversations. It's not the same as seeing everybody in the hallways at a meeting. And, and I mean, I think I speak for everybody in the cattle industry when I say we can't wait to get back to that as soon as possible. But it was great to have that ability to just have some conversations, have some dialogue, get some feedback. Um, anytime we can take some time to do that, it's a win for us here in D.C. So uh, we were really glad to have been able to participate in it. I think the, the team in Denver did a fantastic job putting it on, uh, and I'm hopeful that producers thought so as well. Yeah, well, that's good that there could be that kind of outreach for members. And I know I heard members say a couple of times how excited they were for August, so I think it'll be um, a, a really good convention. I think yep. people are ready to get out of their houses and oh, yeah. see each other. Yep, no question. Uh, so the last thing I wanted to talk to you about today, um, Mr. Bill Gates made some comments <laughs> about beef earlier this month, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on those. You know, I, I said this earlier this week, and I'll say it again, I, you know, and I realize he's not directly involved in the day-to-day -day, uh, operations at Microsoft anymore, but I'm still waiting for Microsoft to make a computer that works. So I don't know why we would look to Bill Gates to give us advice on where we're going to eat, but I, I really can't imagine a more tone-deaf comment for one of the richest men in the world to make than to say that the richest countries in the world should all be eating simulated beef, uh, especially given the fact that he is a massive investor in, in fake meat and he is one of the largest owners of, of agricultural land in the country. For someone with a, a tremendous vested interest in, in some of these things uh, and a platform to be broadsiding American agriculture and the beef industry in particular with, with such an uninformed perspective is, is disappointing. 
I mean, to say the least. Uh, he better than anybody should understand the irreplaceable benefit that our producers are providing in terms of ecosystem services and land management, uh, open spaces, wildlife preservation, uh, preservation of water sources, uh, reducing fuels for wildfire. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. The, the benefits, you know, beyond simply the amazing end product that we produce in the U.S. beef industry, uh, you just simply can't accomplish any of these other goals that he claims to support without producers on the ground doing what they do. So it, it was it was tone deaf to say the least. It was disappointing. Um, unfortunately, uh, you know, he's also a guy that a couple of years ago uh, went on the Ellen show, people will remember, and, and had no idea what anything in the grocery store cost. And he made that comment at the time that it had been many years since he'd been to a grocery store and purchased food. So I guess I would just close by saying maybe he's not the best guy to be taking advice from on, on how we eat and, and what we eat in the United States. Well, I think that's good advice too, but I also think it kind of gives our industry a platform to, to tell that positive story and to talk about one, the great product that beef is and um, two, also the, the benefits that it has for the land and the environment. Absolutely. Land, environment, health. I mean, the, the benefits go on and on. And, and I mean, we're preaching to the choir on this podcast talking about that because all of these people who are listening know exactly what an amazing product uh, we produce in this industry. But getting that message out to other people is, is as important today as it has ever been. I, I mean, we we do, and I've said this before, we do a fantastic job in this industry of telling each other what a great job we're doing. We have got to get better at getting that message out to other people. Um, I was just in my office this morning reading, um, you know, some headlines and, and some stories that are coming out of some of those uh, more sort of, you know, national media online outlets that are always, um, you know, so aggressive uh, in, in sort of attacking us. And, and boy, they just are wrong on all the facts, you know, and, and people consume those those stories and they consume them right before they go to the grocery store and they fill their carts up. So we want to make sure we're counteracting that. We want to make sure we're getting our message out there to people who don't understand where their food comes from. And we want to make sure that we're, we're giving them the, the real story because it is a great story to tell. I, I love looking through our social media channels. I love looking through all of the producers that I follow on, you know, Instagram or Facebook or whatever else that are out there showing video of, of what they're doing today, showing video last week of uh, the horrendous weather conditions in the middle of the country and the, the absolutely adverse conditions they were having to work under to keep their calves alive and just keep their business going and keep, you know, keep people alive. Um, that's important for people to know that, that, that that's, that's what this industry does every day to make sure that those grocery store counters are full. Well, that's certainly a good story to tell. And we're thankful to have you on the podcast this morning to be able to talk a little bit about that and all the things that have gone on in DC this week. So thanks, Ethan, for joining us. Always a pleasure, Ashley. Thank you. This has been another episode of Beltway Beef, official commentary from the National Cattlemen's Beef Association's Washington, D.C. office. Don't forget to check us out online at policy.ncba.org or catch the podcast wherever you get your podcasts, including Spotify at Beltway Beef, also on Twitter at Beltway Beef. We'll see you next time.